You've seen my next guest on pretty much every major news network. Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne Conway. Counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway. And I know some of you are already thinking, oh, come on. But hear me out. In this episode, you're going to get to know a different side of Kellyanne Conway, including how she juggles her personal beliefs against the actions of the Trump administration. My faith motivates me to get up every single morning and try to do well and do good for the people of this nation. I'm Paula Ferris, and this is Journeys of Faith, where we talk to people about how faith guides them through the best and worst of times. This week, we're going beyond the talking points with Kellyanne Conway and explaining why she's praying for Hillary. Kellyanne, I just want to say thank you for taking time out. It's my pleasure, Paula. I'm really glad you reached out to me because I'm thrilled that you are hosting this podcast and talking about faith. Well, I just think it's something that's deeply personal to so many people, but there's not a mainstream media platform to really talk about it. So that's what we're going to do. So we want to hear a little bit about your faith story, the role of faith in politics. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But tell us a little bit about your background. Um, Well, you have four kids. You're married to George Conway, who is a litigation lawyer. But growing up, um, your father left. So you were raised, you were one of four kids. No, I'm one of one kid. One of one? four, the number four, are the adult women in the house who raised me. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. You were raised by some strong women. I often joke now it's four kids and one woman, and then it was one child and four women. Oh, my gosh. Uh, But I was raised in a very unconventional household, Paula. Of uh, that included my mother, her mother, and two of my mother's unmarried sisters. So these four Catholic Italian women raised me in a tiny little rancher in South Jersey, roughly halfway between Philadelphia and Atlantic City. But the one continuum that we always had was faith and family, and those were intersected. Um, How? Well, if I think back, we never had a single political conversation that I can recall in my entire childhood. Really? That was for later on. That was for later on. They all voted. It was their civic duty and it was their rights. They they cherished that right, particularly as women. I'm sure that they all voted for John Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Um, He's handsome. They were Democratic. Uh, He was Irish, Catholic, and a fresh and new face on the scene. But... What I saw growing up were not pictures of Ronald Reagan or John F. Kennedy on the walls in our little kitchen. They were pictures of the Pope in the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. So faith was always a part of my upbringing. I went to Catholic school my entire life, kindergarten through 12th grade, St. Joe's in Hamilton, New Jersey, same school for all 13 years. And then I went to the oldest all-women's Catholic college. My confirmation name mm-hmm. is Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So it's Kelly and Elizabeth. Kelly and Elizabeth. And yes, sacraments are very important. But I think faith doctrinally was very important, the biblical study, the uh, the church-going activities of every every week, obviously, going to church, but also being involved in the church youth group. My mother taught Sunday school, and because I went to Catholic school, I didn't attend Sunday school, so I was her helper. So that was all very important. But faith, as an everyday part of our lives, is also very important. Humility. Right. But, humanity. But you're raised by these strong women. How do you make it your own, though? Because it's one thing to say, I was raised in a strong Catholic family, Um, And we knew right from wrong. But when did you make it your own? Probably made it my own as I made choices in my adult life. I came to Washington at the age of 18 to go to college and then law school and then started my businesses here. So I was in Washington for 20 years beginning at the age of 18, pretty much on my own, always connected to my family, always dependent on them, certainly, and always so happy to go home any chance I could to the place I still call home and I and I love so much Paula. But at the same time, as you become an adult and you have to make those choices or those split-second decisions, then you realize the role of faith is brought into sharp relief. 
because if you choose to ignore it or say it's not important or I'll just go to church on Sunday so I will be mm-hmm. forgiven and absolved, then to me anyway, I would have been betraying that upbringing and what I believe is my role as, as a very flawed sinner but a, quote, good Catholic at the same time. So it's also something I tell my own children. One of the most important decisions. And you have four children. I have four children, ages 13, 13, 10, and 8. What I tell my four children who are also raised Catholic, they're all in single-sex Catholic schools now in the Washington, D.C. area, and that's new for us. We never did that up in New Jersey and New York. But what I tell them is the most one of the most important decisions you make now and you'll make throughout your entire lives is what you do when no one's looking. Mm-hmm. And that has great consequence and implications, and you need to think about that. When, when no one's looking, when your teacher isn't holding you accountable, when your parents aren't in the room, when there aren't cameras everywhere uh, or recording you or looking at your every – when nobody is there to check your behavior or to, 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 or to influence your behavior, well, how do you choose to spend that time? Yeah. And I think that's a very important moral but also ethical guidepost for them and i and i let them know also that we are all sinners we are all flawed we're all imperfect we're all imperfect and every single day we wake up imperfect striving for understanding maybe striving for for perfection but knowing that we'll never get there yeah you you've talked briefly about your father left when you were very young how did that tragedy uh, it had to have traumatized you and the family, but how does something so tragic like that really affect your faith going forward? Well, it shapes you in ways that you don't realize. First, I'd like to say that I have a great relationship with my father now, he, and my children certainly do. I don't believe, for me anyway, and everyone has to make the personal choice, Paula, I don't believe that it's appropriate or helpful to pass on to the next generation of one's own children any of the hurt or anguish or scars that may attend to that particular act of abandonment. My father's a good person who did a bad thing. He left when I was three years old. We, so my you parents forgave divorced him. You have I was, forgiven absolutely. him. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My parents divorced when I was three. Uh, my father um, left with no, left us with no child support and no alimony. And he sounds like such a bad guy, but he's such a good grandfather. And um, he and his current wife and her family are very involved in our lives. And I think that's wonderful because, again, an imperfect person like me who will seek mercy and grace and absolution many times throughout my life is very happy to be in a position to actually grant it right. to my own father. But it shaped me over time, I think, maybe a little bit negatively, but very positively. How? Well, it make it made me strive for positive male relationships in my own life. So I was very close to my uncle, my uncle through marriage, very close to father figures in our extended family, my mother's cousins, or a priest in our lives who I call uncle and who's godfather um, to one of my own daughters many years later. So you find those very positive male role models in your life, but also with whom you can connect and form a bond that sustains you throughout your life. And sure. I, I think it's really important for young girls and women to have both positive male and female role models and connections inside the family and outside the family to the extent that that is, is practical and, and, and accessible for each of them. Um, but it's, it's funny because I even look now that I, I work with Ivanka Trump, who has a very strong relationship with her father. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a very mm-hmm. strong, lifelong relationship with her father, and they went into the family business, if, if you look at it. And so for me, I think oh, having to grapple with 
the vacancy and maybe even accommodate the struggle and the loss. You know, that struggle has formed me in a very positive way. I don't feel sorry for myself at all. And I want to say to the children in America um, whose parents are divorced or who live in broken homes, it's about, I think it's about 40% of my generation, Generation Xers, I had read a long time ago, Paula, live in a single-parent household at some point in their lives before they're 16. That's a very high number, and it may be just as high now. But I want to say that um, for me, I never felt like a child divorced like some of these children who remember their parents being together and having been part of that nuclear family, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it falls apart, it dissolves when they're at the ages of 12 or 10 or 13 or 16. Um, They suffered in their own way, it's a very personal loss, but I didn't suffer that way. I don't remember my parents together. It's hard for me to even picture them together. So I, I don't feel sorry for myself at all. I feel like it's all part of growth and God has a plan. And I'm just was so part happy. of your story. It's part of my story and yeah. everybody has. I think it's a pretty common experience mm-hmm. for many people. But also my mother's triumph over unexpected loss and tragedy, as you say, and rejection. Sure. Her triumph over that, she was married at 21, had me right at 23, divorced by 26 with her high school degree and never expecting to be in the workforce, never expecting to do anything other than have a big family and be a um, housewife. I'm mm-hmm. as I said, at the height, at the beginning of the height of feminism, no fault divorces and Roe versus Wade and Ms. Magazine. It was all there right about at that time. And I'm just so grateful and admiring of my own mother for, again, not feeling sorry for herself, not saying I'm a victim, but figuring out how to pull herself up, go get employed, put me in the cat, figure out a way to keep me in the Catholic school and rely upon her family and rely upon her larger community of family and friends, circle of family and friends in her larger community and her Catholic faith. Right. But when people ask you, what do you believe when it comes to faith? What do you say? Well, I believe in God as the almighty uh, creator of heaven and earth, of all things, visible and invisible, as the profession of faith in the Catholic faith says. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And I believe in in the saints. I believe in um, Catholic doctrine, and I'm very happy that the Catholic Church is having very tough conversations that should have been had decades ago about the rampant and inexcusable and unspeakable pedophilia that occurred um, among it looks like a growing number, meaning a, a larger number than everybody realized, sure. of, of, of priests and perhaps deacons and cardinals, um, but still a res- relatively small number across the entire church. And why is that important? Because people should realize that their relationship is with the church mm-hmm. and with Jesus Christ, not with any one priest or any one cardinal. And those are, again, unspeakable tragedies. I hope if the law, if, if the statute of limitations hasn't run, on those who have committed crimes against children, um, that they would be prosecuted under the fullest extent of the law. I hope those who have have tried to hit, hide them out of view, have tried to move around, move these priests around, rather than coming to terms with what was actually happening. Yep. I like the fact that the Catholic Church, through Pope Francis and through others, is having a conversation about divorce and is having a conversation about homosexuality, is having a conversation about social justice and the poor, is having a conversation about. Um, drugs and prisoners. I mean, having a fuller conversation so that the Catholic Church is also in touch with and speaking about the culture is incredibly sure. important. If you had one word to describe your faith, what would it be? Just one. Unflappable. Okay. And it's always tested, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. My faith is unflappable, and it helps me be unflappable under an enormous amount of um, strain. And I would just say to everybody out there, Paula, that faith is very personal, and I see it under attack daily. I see every religion basically under attack by someone somewhere, somehow. And that's a shame because we as a country have to remember that was part of our founding. The, the freedom of religion, the freedom to practice your religion, is a bedrock principle of the United States of America. It's enshrined in our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. And it's also was so important to the founders. It's, it's frankly how the country yeah. was founded. We mm-hmm. were escaping not being able to practice our faith the way we wanted to in, in England, in Great Britain. And so why is that important? It's important because as faith is increasingly attacked, as people feel like they can't make the sign of the cross before a meal in public, mm-hmm. or they can't, um, they, can't ex- they can't say what their religious affiliation is, they feel like they're under attack. When uh, some of the cabinet departments are either at threat of losing funding or have to put out specific proclamations, reinvigorating and restating what we should all know already. Mm-hmm. Um, I get nervous about that because remember that the separation of church and state in this country was meant to protect the church from the state, not so, the other way so around. So let me ask you, what do you think the role of faith in politics is? Well, the state should um, allow, meaning the state should get out of the way of people of faith and institutions um, existing and and adhering to what they believe, so long as it doesn't it doesn't conflict with our law. So a great example is the people who are claiming, oh, I didn't get treatment for my child because it's against our faith. You see more and more, in fact, recently, you see that those parents are being prosecuted or arrested for not undertaking reasonable, simple care for a child in an emergency room or with yeah. penicillin, for example, and then the child is dead. What I think we have to realize is that the separation of church and state is healthy and it is part of our founding. But uh, it also doesn't mean that we don't, that our currency shouldn't say in God we trust as it always has. It it also doesn't mean that people of faith should feel like they can't feel free to practice that. So the president, for example, is very proud of his action on the Johnson Amendment. Mm -hmm. He feels that people of faith should be able to express that faith. Coming up after this short break, why and how Kellyanne is praying for Hillary Clinton. You are a counselor to the president. You have his ear. But does your faith ever clash with his? There are a lot of people. He claims to be a Christian. And there are many that that question his Christianity. Do you think that they should? But why? No, they shouldn't. And here's why. His Christianity is personal to him. And that is his belief system. And but isn't Christianity too? It's loving God and it's loving people, and it's allowing people to see that there's something different inside of them, um, and they will know your Christians by your love for one another. And a lot of people don't honestly see that from the present. Well, they should look a little harder. Okay. Um, in fact, they should look at all. I think people are blinded by their own partisanship. Some are blinded by their own lack of faith in our leaders, in our institutions. There are some, frankly, who still can't get over an election that was two years ago. So I was raised to respect the presidency and the current president, no matter, well, the presidency and its current occupant, no matter who it was. And we've lost some of that in this country. And I think it's very irresponsible of some people to be even telling their children, you don't have to respect the presidency, you don't have to respect the president, let's just wait this out. 
um, the way he is yeah. talked about routinely and that it's acceptable for him to be described the way he's described on social media, on cable TV. Um, it's really unfortunate. But I also want to say this. I see every single day how much the president loves the people of how this country. How much are you with the president every single day? Um, I'm with him every day. I talk to him every day. I don't go on his foreign trips on purpose. <laughs> and so I don't, I'm not there. But, but we're very close. And if I didn't have the opportunity to say to President Trump where I disagree politely or what a differing point of view would be to one that he just heard or remind him what it is he promised when he was out there campaigning and talking to people publicly. ABC covered it, others covered it, that he promised to do X, Y, and Z, and that those people believed in him that he would execute on that. So let's find a way to make good on that. I work with the president every single day on breaking the back of our opioids and drug crisis that took the lives of 72,000 Americans just last year. I see him with the survivors, the people who are in recovery and treatment. I see him um, consoling the, the grieving parents of kids who are victims of drugs or school shootings. Uh, I see him I see him pray with people of faith. And he also is somebody who's been trying to protect religious freedom and conscience protections, which yeah. are, again, constantly threatened. You, um, you spoke at the March for Life in January, and you led the crowd in a chant, and you said, we are the pro-life generation. This is a huge topic amongst the faith communities. Do you want the president to do everything in his power to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, he is certainly the most pro-life president this country has ever seen. And that is quite remarkable and improbable to many people in this country, including the pro-life community. Why is he and how is he? I think that for Donald Trump, his faith journey and his journey from pro-choice to pro-life really approximate and matches that of many Americans who say, well, for most of my life, I was pro-choice, or I really didn't think much about it, or I have somebody close to me who decided to have an abortion, and uh, I supported that person. People will say, I supported that person because I love that person. And the more they talk to folks who have had an abortion, um, who may regret it, the more that they understand the intersection of public policy and these issues. This president has told the story. He told me the story first in 2011 when right. he first thought of running for president. He's told the story publicly about his adult female friend who found herself pregnant unexpectedly. Her boyfriend at the time is also a friend of the president's, did not want the child. She decided to go for it. And the president says this child changed everybody's life for the better, including his, including mm. Mr. Trump's. And so everybody has to confront that in their own way. And this president is exposing the fact that Planned Parenthood gets a half a billion dollars a year in taxpayer funding and is also one of the largest donors to the Democratic Party, spent over $80 million for Hillary Clinton and other Democrats in 2016. That's not money they were giving out They're for past government years money of mammograms. And that's money they were doing. That, that's p- partisan politicking. But do you think evangel- evangelicals and people will question why they voted for Trump, but it's A, to put uh, conservative judges on SCOTUS, and it's B, a lot of them want Roe v. Wade overturned. Do you think that's going to happen? Well, that's up to the Supreme Court. But on the but judges— do you want, do you, maybe I should ask you, do you want it to happen? Because well, you're I, pro-life. I'm with, I'm with um, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on this issue that Roe is settled law. You never know what, the, you never know what facts will come in, in front of you before. It's a—, it's a it's a decision from 1973, and most Americans, because you've pulled this, don't understand what Roe did and did not do. So they just feel that some, Roe— because of, Just because something settled law doesn't mean it's moral. Jim Crow laws were 
settled law for a while. And, and I think many law. of us pro-lifers yeah. would tell you that. But mm-hmm. what I think will happen, this is my prediction of what will happen, continue to happen, I should say, with respect to the law on abortion, is you see in many of these states that reasonable um, reasonable questions are being raised about abortion on demand, which means anyone, anytime, anywhere. So you see more restrictions. But the president has made so good on his promise to appoint constitutionalist um, pro-life judges to the U.S. Circuit Courts. We have 28 U.S. Circuit Court judges that President Trump nominated and that were confirmed. One out of every seven seven U.S. Circuit judges now is a Trump appointee. He's appointing a lot of judges, that's for sure. You've said that your faith is is the bedrock of your life. When you look at, um, you know, does your faith, though, I, I know you couldn't do this job without your faith, but does it? how hard is that to reconcile the fact that your personal faith does sometimes clash with the policies um, that are maybe being administered by this administration? How do, how do you reconcile that? Like, I, I know you had a hard time with the, the migrant families that were being torn apart. As a Catholic, you said that that was hard. So how do you reconcile that? Let me say a few things. Let me just answer your question more generally. Where my faith has been most important since I took this job is in trying to square what people who I know um, to be generally good people who I'd like to see the best in, how vicious and personal and just awful they've been toward the president, but certainly toward me, people I've known for a very long time, for decades. I don't know if they're motivated by jealousy or self-doubt or avarice. I don't know what's motivating them, but to be so horribly personal and amoral in their criticisms is not not policy-centered criticisms, personal criticisms. That's where my faith has played a big role for me because I need to forgive them almost immediately. I need to and be the bigger person. I forgive my critics. And I pray for them because something must be deeply that bothering them. You literally pray for your critics. I so pray what for does my that sound critics. Like? I pray for my critics. I think winning also has finished a lot of sentences and <laughs> so, solved so, a lot of problems. So do you, you pray for Hillary Clinton? How, how does that prayer sound? Oh, I definitely pray for, pray for Hillary Clinton. I pray for anyone who lacks that level of self-awareness. And I pray that she'll see that she still has a very large platform to do good and to do well, that she's a very wealthy um, woman who's well-respected in certain corners of this country among mm-hmm. certain people, and that she could be using that for such good. Instead of instead of still talking about the 2016 election and why she lost, how about becoming a winner again by converting your considerable platform and your wealth and your reach by going out and helping women and girls, not just talking about helping women and girls, but why not set up a foundation? Why not try to do good across the world? For these, for these women and girls. So that's surprised me. But I even mean critics in the media. Right. I mean people who hide behind their social media muscle and their cable news cojones, as I say. <laughs> um, it's easy to do. But that's, but that's the thing. And it's also, my faith also motivates me to stay in this job because my You're family- You're not going to agree with everything my, that happens. I, I don't agree with everything that happens. Remember, my family and I have also sacrificed time, privacy, money. Um, you know, unlike Sarah Sanders or Ivanka Trump, I didn't grow up- around, you know, a famous father or being in the business. And so this is all new to me in terms of sacrificing your privacy. And certainly, but the reason I do it too is I'm part of the promise the president made to people to do good policy-wise. And I feel like one small molecule in this administration, but I have I have witnessed firsthand 
I'm, I'm one of the people who goes out and interfaces with the public frequently, and I've witnessed firsthand the people who will say, please, tearfully, please just tell the president to keep at it, to ignore the critics, because my paycheck is fatter. My son finally got a job. We, we're a young couple that didn't even vote for him, but we're able to buy our first home now. Um, thank you so much for bringing manufacturing back here because that is my skill set. Thank you for dignifying all types of work, not just folks who went to a four-year college like I did first in my family or law school like I did first in my family, but all the people I graduated with who graduated high school, crossed the same stage I did and got their diploma, Paula, and the very next day went to work as a welder, a carpenter, mechanic, a Mm -hmm. hairdresser, a cosmetologist. We should all be respected for our career choices, including those who choose to stay home and raise their children. So I want to stay at this. My faith motivates me to get up every single morning and try to do well and do good for the people of this nation who didn't elect me, but elected a man who has empowered me and trusts me to help help put forward policies that help Americans. I also want to say that this country has been so great to me, this country where women have rights and where uh, where I'm able to be educated, where my children are able, my daughters and my son are able to be educated, able to make their own great choices. If you can, If you can give back through public service, which I never expected to do at this age and stage, if you can give back through public service, to a country that's been so good to all of us. If you can look at the military and the veterans and their families, I work on military spouse employment is one of my issues, even in a very small way, then it's worthwhile. Yeah. I really feel like it's it's me trying to give back to all those who have sacrificed more than I ever could imagine. Right. Well, regardless of what the critics say, you always look at um, the criticism head on and you don't run away from it. So I, I, I think people have to have a lot of respect for you. But just one last thing, one last request, just see what you can do to, to, to get Donald J. Trump on the podcast to talk about it. You got it. Faith. I'll bring that right I back. Know you've got it. You've got it here. <laughs> Next week on Journeys of Faith, he's the champion and a Heisman Trophy winner. But his success has never quieted the critics. Literally for a four-game stretch, they had two Jumbotrons on one of the Jumbotrons. All they did was show highlights of my worst plays ever. Still, Tim Tebow keeps the faith. He's going to tell us how. Thank you for listening to Journeys of Faith. If you like this, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. And make sure to come back next Wednesday for our latest episode. And if you think there's someone that we should have on the podcast, let me know. Tweet me at Paula Ferris. And a big thanks to the team at ABC Radio. Susie Liu, Mike Dubusky, Lewis Millman, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kalb, and Steve Jones. I'll talk to you next week.